The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Hugh Kent. He and his wife, Lisa, own and operate King Grove Organic Farm in Central Florida, where they grow certified organic blueberries and develop farm machinery, including patented non-chemical weed control technologies. Mr. Kent has a BA in economics from Tufts University and a law degree from the Cornell Law School. Welcome, Mr. Kent. Thank you. Nice to be talking with you. I am so interested in speaking to farmers because it is an area where we have a dwindling number to connect with in our environment. We've got less farmers today than we did, say, 100 years ago. And as a dietitian, I think it's so important to understand how our food is produced who produces it, and under what environmental standards. But I was really curious about you. You have a very interesting background. You don't have a farming background, and yet you came back to your family's farm. Tell me how that happened. (laughs) If if I remember, it's been kind of a blur. I did grow up around farming. My mother grew up on the Tuttle Farm in New Hampshire, which is was the oldest family farm in the country, started in the 1600s, 1632, and passed down from father to son through 10 generations, actually 11 generations. So my that was my grandfather's farm as I remembered it, and then my uncle Hugh, who I'm named for, was the next generation, and my cousin Will in my generation. And that farm closed down, like so many family farms, just a few years ago. They survived the colonial times and the American Revolution and the Civil War and the World Wars and everything in between very resourceful people, very hardworking, but the policies and evolution of agriculture and food in this country made it impossible for them to continue, although they were wonderful farmers. So I grew up with that, and then that extended family was involved in a citrus grove in central Florida, which I always enjoyed being around very much, and a lot of the farmers were here on their vacations. And then I went off to a different path, and practiced law for a while, and then moved to Florida, and this orange grove was put on the market by my family, couldn't afford to keep it. So it stayed on the market for about six months, and then one of my sisters and I were able to put together investors, and we bought it at an arm's length transaction in 2004, and then I spent about five years as a developer, which is an interesting thing to do in Florida, interesting business. And I was determined to do things a little bit better, see if I could create an exemplar development a little bit different than is typically done around here. And I came across a man named Randall Arndt. And uh, anybody who's curious about land development, this guy's a wonderful communicator. He's written many, many books. He's considered the father of conservation design in this country, which is kind of the rural equivalent of the new urbanism, where there's a lot of emphasis on keeping green space and open space so that when you're done developing a community, you have not extinguished everything of environmental value that used to live there. And one of his one of his explanations for this type of development is a golf course development without the golf course. 
So instead of having a common amenity, which is a golf course, it's retained land, which has still got some habitat and some wildlife value and some other ecological value. Anyway, that's Randall Arndt's work. And I tried to copy the things he taught me and tried to create another example of his work here. And I spent about five years doing that. And on the verge of selling it, I ended up selling it as conservation land to the county where I live, which was a very nice resolution for me. And and that left enough money to pay off the loans and start the farm, mm. which used to be a conventional citrus grove. And with the problems with citrus greening disease in Florida, I decided to repurpose it for blueberries and from the beginning as an organic farm. And what led you to choose organic farming? It's, it's so much harder for farmers to farm organically, it seems. There's extensive paperwork, as well as dealing with issues on a more systems thinking level. So, you know, when you see a problem, you don't just reach for a spray. You say to yourself, why do I have this problem? At least that's what I've learned from the organic farmers I've known. What led you to the organic farming method? Every reason I could think of, really. I wanted to do something for this land that I was so emotionally attached to and historically attached to. And I wanted to work in a way where I wasn't exposing myself and my family and people I care about and people I employ to harsh chemistry and unknown chemistry, really, and its effects. And I really wanted to grow good, healthy food, give people that choice and provide it for them if they want it and, and do it in a way where I can leave the land more productive and healthier than when I started. And, and that's what real organic agriculture is about. Yeah. I looked online to see what kinds of environmental problems were in your region and you're right, because of the conventional citrus industry, I believe I saw that about 2,400 wells in 38 counties have been polluted with agricultural chemicals, but those chemical contaminated wells are especially high in Lake County. So thank you for doing your part to clean up everyone's water. It's, <laughs> it's really serious. Oh, no, absolutely. I laugh because that's underappreciated byproduct of organic agriculture mm -hmm. and an underappreciated one of conventional agriculture. It's, you know, in the economics world, it's called externalities. And there are positive and there are negative externalities. And those are the costs and benefits that accrue as a byproduct of a production, which are not factored into the price. Exactly. So when I farm, I know that I'm actually making the land healthier. I'm making the water around here healthier. I've got 100-foot static water table, so that means there's basically 100 feet of sand filter between my fields and the aquifer. Mm. So when the rain hits here or the irrigation is on here and the water goes down through that filter, there's nothing being dragged down through that sand and into the groundwater. It's actually acting as a, a filter. The water, the water gets cleaner down there every time it decides to rain on my farm. I don't think the same thing is happening on a lot of conventional farms. It certainly hasn't happened over time in, in this area. There's a, just a lot of pollution has made it, its way into, into the water table. And it's, it's one of those things that, well, you know, you can look for the, the positive and negative side effects of different agricultural systems all over, and it's really astonishing and enlightening. Mm -hmm. And I really wish organic farmers were paid through our tax dollars as an incentive to farm that way because water is our most important nutrient. 
And some of these chemicals, especially those in your region, EDB and aldicarb, those are potent carcinogens. And many of these chemicals are what we call persistent organic pollutants, and they stay in the environment and in our bodies, oftentimes in our fat tissue, they get into breast milk. So from a dietitian's perspective, I think we make really good partners in public health. So thank you again for that. I want to talk about blueberries specifically because you mentioned irrigation and immediately my mind goes to climate and why blueberries. When I think about blueberries, I think about Maine and I think about areas that are not quite so hot. And with climate change, I wonder about the effects on your ability to produce blueberries. I'm assuming you need irrigation, but tell me a little bit about some of the reasons why you chose blueberries and some of the challenges unique to your region. Well, I chose them in part because the opportunity in the industry were really created by the University of Florida plant breeding program there, which hybridized blueberry plants in a way that would allow them to produce with low chill, which means that they don't need a whole lot of cold weather in the wintertime in order to go dormant. They do need some dormancy, generally, and if they don't go dormant, they don't flower. If they don't flower, they don't fruit. So the the different strains of blueberries were bred selectively to create a stock, which could then be grown in warmer climates. And this has been taken down to Central and South America as well. So that's why you see these blueberries that are available year-round. But the production systems are not necessarily the same in places like Georgia and Florida as they are in Mexico and Chile and Peru. It's, I did want to say something about different production regions and different systems. Please do. And it goes to the external cost that we were talking about. I grow in a system which is real organic, and by that I mean... I comply with the federal USDA regulations on organic growing, and that means that I'm growing in soil with an emphasis on soil, and I'm not using plastics. I don't use plastic for mulches. I don't use plastic for weed control. There's no plastic on my farm, and unfortunately, that's no longer the case with most of my, quote, organic competitors. Most of them now are heavily reliant on plastic, and they're basically hydroponic systems. It's very different than a true organic system or a real organic system. And they grow in plastic pots, and they put those plastic pots on top of plastic weed mats. So if you're going to use one of these new hydroponic container systems, they they like to call them container as opposed to hydroponic, but they're definitely hydroponic because they get their nutrition from a liquid feed. But the way that system works is the ground is prepared by leveling it and compacting it, which basically eliminates its value as agricultural land, but it's turned into a parking lot of sorts. It's compacted, it's leveled, plastic sheeting is put out, and then plastic pots are put on top of that plastic sheeting, and then in some circumstances a plastic greenhouse goes on top of that. It's an enormous amount of plastic which is not recyclable and is not recycled. And then inert growth media is put into that plastic pot, could be coconut coir, it could be something similar. And then all the nutrition that that plant receives is dripped in through the pot, and it's a solution of extracted fertilizers and micronutrients that the grower realizes the plant responds well to, at least cosmetically. And I want to be very clear about this part. I have great admiration for hydroponic growers. 
I admire anybody who farms well. I admire innovation, and these guys have certainly come up with a system which has got a lot of benefits in certain circumstances, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not critical of it in that sense at all, but it is not in any way organic. Mm -hmm. And it should not be confused with real organic. It should not be labeled as organic, but yet it is. And you will not find these hydroponic blueberry growers on your shelf labeling themselves as hydroponic or ever acknowledging that they're hydroponic. They put the USDA organic label onto their product and they insist that it's that it's organic and the USDA currently is letting them do that. So the problem that that has created in, in my area, which is berries, is that on the shelves, there's no way for the consumer to know what they're getting and how the organic berry was grown and what sort of external costs around it because the stores certainly aren't going to go stand out there and say, well, this organic berry over here is more valuable than this one over here because of the way it's grown and um, you're getting a soil-grown one here and this one is merely hydroponic. They're not going to do that. So instead, they both show up on the shelf as organic and there is tremendous pressure on people like me who are abiding by the rules tremendous price pressure for us because it's a more expensive way of growing than the one I described, which is these plastic pots. And to compound that, this is the growing system which is dominant throughout Central and South America, where an increasing number of our berries come from. To give you an idea of just how, how big a shift this is, in the springtime when you get fresh blueberries, they come from Florida and from Georgia if they're grown in this country. And if not, they come from Chile, Peru, and Mexico. And now we're at a level where the farm gate for berries in Florida is around 20 20 million pounds in Florida, approximately the same amount in Georgia, and 75 to 80 million come out of Mexico. Wow. And they, they come out of Mexico where the growing system involves labor at about one-tenth of the rate that we pay. So they pay their labor 10 to $14 a day. Wow. And obviously we don't do that. No. Um, in my farm we pay 12 to 15 but you know we certainly are constrained by law to pay 8 to 10 something like that. So it's a factor of almost 10 times what we pay. Wow. Um, they pay 10 times less. There's not the same kind of environmental oversight or food safety oversight. And the Mexican government subsidizes these operations by building infrastructure for them at no cost. So these are huge multinational companies, American companies included, and they've gone to Central America, and they grow in these pots, and a lot of this is organic. So almost all the organic that I'm, I compete with comes uh, during my spring window, comes out of Mexico, and almost all of it's grown in this way in these, in these hydroponic containers. Well, let me take one break because we're a little bit more than halfway through and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Hugh Kent. He is the owner and operator of King Grove Organic Farm in Central Florida, where they grow real organic project certified organic blueberries. Well, this is such an education, Mr. Kent, because when the consumer goes to the grocery store We've been told now, and I, I'm the first to say it, that blueberries are high in anthocyanins, they're high in antioxidants, they have they usually always top the list along with blackberries and black raspberries for their beneficial brain enhancing compounds, brain protecting, I should say. 
And so we want consumers to be eating blueberries, but we want consumers to understand how those blueberries are produced. And I don't think we ask enough of the right questions, nor do we know what to really investigate in comparing one box of blueberries versus another, where one might have been grown through the hydroponic system and another through the soil system. So I think that labeling is a problem. I think that just helping consumers ask the right questions and exert consumer pressure in the marketplace could be helpful. I want to commend you for not using plastic. I think we both probably understand how detrimental plastics are in our environment and how long-lasting they are. So thank you for that as well. Well, I, d I just point out that I'm complying with the law. The law does not allow plastics to be used in the way that these systems, these hydroponic systems, use it. So there's a real failing in the regulation of the organic program by the USDA because this is not allowed legally. But that's what's happening because, as you would expect, there are some there's some large influence wielded by some of these big ag companies. What can a consumer do to help veer the system towards the healthier way to grow these berries? Well, I think it would be great if consumers understood how important soil growing is. And I'm sure you're familiar with this, but maybe not everybody is. There's an incredible system that operates in healthy soil. And there are more microbes that live in a spoonful of fertile soil than there are humans on the planet, 8 billion. And in a handful of soil, there are more microbes than humans have ever lived on the planet. And if you talk to the PhD soil scientists about this, one astonishing thing you'll learn is that they have names for somewhere between 1% and 10% of these microbes. They don't even have names for the rest of them, let alone understand what they do. So there's an extraordinarily complex universe of creation that's happening underneath a plant that's growing in healthy soil. And the root exudates of that plant act in a way which I think is well described as analogous to a brain. There's synapses and neurons, and in the case of the plant, there are exudates. So the plant has some sort of intelligence which allows it to exude from its root tips chemistry which will recruit these microbes to go out and fetch for the plant what it needs. And that's why, as organic farmers, we spend a lot of time trying to create biodiversity in our soil. We, we want to create a lot of activity in there, lots for the plant to pick and choose from. And the plant's operate at a level of sophistication which goes all the way up to understanding that if, a, say, there's a leaf-eating insect that's descended on the plant, it will change its own chemistry through recruitment of what's in the soil through its root tip exudates to fend off the insect. So it's a type of immune system almost. And this complexity is not even, we don't understand it yet, you know, let alone appreciate it. But I think what's really significant to me is that is to realize that that microbiotic community that exists around soil-grown plants is very similar to the microbiotic community that lives in our digestive systems. We have a microbiome in our digestive systems, which is also of incredible complexity. And most of the cells in our in our body are actually these microbes, which aren't really us, but that they that live in our digestive systems and help us digest food. And it just stands to reason for me, I'm not a, I don't have the science, nobody has the science at the moment, 
but it just stands to reason to me that these incredibly complex microbiotic communities that live in soil and in our intestinal tracts have evolved together over eons and that we are getting from good soil-grown food what we need in order for our own immune systems to work well and our, the rest of our systems. Yeah, we are at the tip of the iceberg in understanding all of these complexities and how the soil health is related to our gut health. It's probably one of the most exciting areas in nutrition today. But I think helping people understand the benefit of choosing their food accordingly would be important. The taste of a soil-grown organic blueberry, I believe, is and backed up by the people who come to me regularly about this, and they just say, these things just taste incredible. And I think tomatoes are another good example. If you taste a soil-grown organic tomato and then you taste a hydroponic one, you taste a soil-grown organic blueberry and then you taste a hydroponic organic blueberry, it's night and day. And I think there's a reason for that, and it's because our bodies know what's good for us. But it's a very different flavor. Hydroponically, you can grow a cosmetically wonderful fruit, but I don't believe it has the same nutritional density, and it just certainly doesn't have the same flavor. And the unfortunate thing is, at the moment, most all of these tomatoes are gone, the soil-grown organic ones, and the blueberries also, the soil-grown organic blueberries. And this is happening with other crops, cucumbers, peppers. It's not just these two. You know, it's happening all over, and it's happening in the, at an alarming rate. And when you ask what can consumers do, I think it's, it's to understand this and then look for things like the Real Organic Project. And I can talk about that if you like a little bit. But I, I think that's one thing people can do. It's, a, it's an organization which was started only a few years ago and uh, by farmers. It's a farmer's organization, which was why I was drawn to it. And I was one of the original pilot farms, and now there's 500 farms, and it's increasing rapidly. And these are the guys who started the organic movement in this country. A lot of them are older now, but this was their life's work, and they've seen it being stripped away by uh, Big Ag that's come for organics, and they are livid. And this is a way that they have decided to fight back. So they are educating people. They are holding a what is I think is going to be an incredible symposium, which will be in January. And the speakers include Al Gore, Bill McKibben, Paul Hawken, people all, all international renowned and from all areas of expertise. And um, that's going to be every Sunday afternoon in January. It's a virtual symposium comprising of all talks by these people. And I'm really looking forward to it. It's very exciting that this is getting a lot of attention. But anybody who's interested in it can go to realorganicproject.org. I'm glad you mentioned the website. I was just going to say I will provide that link for our listeners on our show notes page. And then also just to remind people that many of the presentations in past Real Organic Project Symposia have been posted. And if you want to learn more about any of the topics that we've been talking about, that's a really good place to go. I want to just change gears for just a moment because we have communicated about issues that affect organic farmers. One of the issues has to do with how consumers are educated. And that's an area that's near and dear to my heart. But one of the messages that we get a lot that I think is unfair and wrong is that organic is seen as this elitist food category. And I think it is called elitist because maybe the price point is going to be a little bit higher in the market. 
However, I think it's wrong to say that just a certain proportion of the population has access to this food. When you look at who is buying organic food, it's all across the socioeconomic levels. People who care about their children are willing to pay more when a good food is available to them. And I think the issue really is that people need to be able to make an honest living so that everyone can afford good food because it is so basic to our nation's economy. Absolutely. You don't have to go that far. Well, geographically, it's far, I guess. But, you know, the Europeans don't put up with this. They don't allow hydroponics to be considered organic in Europe. Really, we're the only place in the world. They don't do it in Australia. They don't do it anywhere except for in the U.S. where this is considered to be organic. You're right. This is the industrial agriculture's, big corporate agriculture's answer is to say, well, you know, you guys are a bunch of elitists. This is not practical. You can't feed the world this way. You know, it just doesn't work. I think that's absolutely false. We don't even feed ourselves in this country at the moment, fruits and vegetables, not even close. We're a huge net importer of fruits and vegetables because of what our ag ag policy is like. But organic food costs more to produce, but it's because we're not factoring in the true costs of production. So the positive externalities of, of an organic operation and what it does for local community health, what it does for the water quality, what it does for the land and the land's future productivity is uh, all a benefit. If you look at the cheap food that we're buying, whether it's hydroponic organic or whether it's other kinds of conventional ag, which are a lot cheaper, we're using chemistry, which is robbing the land of its future ability to produce for us. And it's polluting us and it's making us sick at the same time. And unfortunately, we seem to ignore all of those costs and we say, well, you know, geez, it's 50 cents cheaper here on the, on the shelf. I'll go with this one. And really, that's part of government's responsibility is to capture some of the, those externalities and then make them part of the price of the product. But at the moment, that's not working well at all. But I, it's interesting. If people are interested in what potential is, you can look at, at Denmark's model, which is where the, the government has said, we're going to make Organics, the predominant form of agriculture in our country, because we think it's healthier for everybody in the long run. It's cheaper, and it's better for the climate. It's better for our society as a whole, and so they're investing in it heavily. And the figure that I heard to do an equivalent program in this country was just 19 billion dollars, which is not a whole lot when you look at the scale of some of the farm giveaways that have been happening in recent months. Exactly, so it can be done if our priorities are different. But um, absolutely. But there is one really troubling thing about this. Another troubling thing about this claim of elitism is that the way to make more organic food available is not to change the definition of it and dilute it and claim something that's not organic is now organic. That's not how you create more availability. It's like if you need more potable water, you don't just take polluted water and call it potable now, and now we've got more potable water. You don't change test scores and make your kids smarter that way. So these types of non-organic organic products that are now on our shelves are not giving more organic food to the public. It's just changing the definition. I need to thank you so much. Unfortunately, we have to close, but you've given us lots of food for thought, and I think that your economics degree really lends well to the discussion of full-cost accounting, and I wish we had more discussions like that. 
I need to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Hugh Kent, owner and operator of King Grove Organic Farm in Central Florida, where they grow real organic projects, certified organic blueberries. I will provide a link to your beautiful website as well as the Real Organic Project. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. 